Good morning, everyone. Um, so yesterday evening uh, was it was the final of the Champions League. Is the pinnacle of club football within Europe, and Liverpool, the team that I support, uh, done really well this season. They've made their way to the final, and every step along the way, uh, whether through the group stages or through the knockout stages, I was hopeful that they would win, that they would get through to the next round. And when I found out that they were going to be in the final for the last couple of weeks, I have been hoping and hoping that they would be able to get over that final hurdle, that they would get the result and they would be the ones that are lifting the trophy. Now, I'm going to do a bit of a spoiler alert. If anyone is here who doesn't want to know the outcome, please stick your fingers in your ears, go la 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 la. Um, no, one, no, no one cares. Um, but what happened is, uh, in spite of how hopeful I was, we lost in the final. Which is obviously, for, for me, is hugely disappointing. I'd had that hope and it hadn't come through. Now in my notes, all I've got down for my intro is this, I've written Champions League final. Because at the time of writing, I had no idea what the outcome was going to be. I'd had that hope, but even up until, uh, what was it, about half past nine, 20 to 10 last night, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So actually, even when I was coming to prepare my notes, it was fairly vague, because it really depended on what the result was. I'd hoped, but there was no certainty of what the outcome was going to be. We can hope for many things, can't we? We can put our hope in many things. And often, if we think about it, the things that we put our hope in, there's not actually any guarantee. There's not actually any certainty of those things coming to pass. But the Bible speaks of hope. Actually, the Bible speaks about hope a lot. And when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not speaking about a hope that's uncertain. It speaks of something that is sure, that is certain, that is guaranteed. And hope and its content are what we're going to be thinking about today as we're carrying through and continuing our Living Ready series. We've been working our way, I think, over the last six or seven weeks through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and we're going to continue that journey. We're kind of coming to the end of it now. We've got this week, uh, and then next week we'd, we're actually starting our new series, and then the final week we're coming back to finish this one. Okay, So we've got Martin Gibson from The Vine coming to speak next week, and because we had to rearrange some of this series, we're kind of having to juggle things around a little bit, okay? So we've got this week, and then in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be looking at the last section of this letter. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. Hugh, I'm sorry, I did not clue you in on what I was doing. So hopefully it will come up on the screens uh, as well. But if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn there. And while you're finding your way there, let's just kind of have a bit of a recap uh, of what this letter is about and of why Paul is writing it. So this is a letter to a new church made up of new believers. Paul and Silas had gone into this city, Thessalonica, they'd preached the gospel, they'd shown how uh, the, the scriptures that, that people had known, uh, how they pointed to Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled them, that he was the promised Messiah. And the response was amazing. They had lots and lots of people who were, had turned and put their faith in Jesus, made up uh, of many out of the Jewish community, but loads of the Greeks as well. So it's a real kind of mishmash of people coming together from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures. 
Uh, and this church had started, and Paul and Silas had spent some time with them. Uh, they'd done some teaching. They'd been laying foundations. They'd been explaining about actually what this new life that they're coming to, what it looks like uh, practically as it's worked out, what it means to have your identity changed, uh, to now be children of God. And then as they were teaching and laying these foundations, they were forced to leave the city. And so Paul's letter, his intent in writing, it's one that he's encouraging them in their walk so far. There's much, as we've seen over the last weeks, that they've been doing really well in. And there was much for Paul to be encouraged in. But it's also an opportunity for him to continue to teach, to invest in them, maybe to bring a bit of realignment where some of the, some of the, the, the ways in which they were thinking and living weren't quite in line uh, with, with the way that the, the gospel uh, the gospel would have brought in their lives. And so uh, th- this is really Paul's intent. And now throughout the letter, what, we'll f- what we will see, and hopefully what we have seen, is that there's this continuing thread that runs through the whole letter. And Paul keeps returning to the subject of Jesus coming back. He says there's going to be a day coming when Jesus, uh, while he's now with the Father, there's going to be a day where he's coming back for his people, for the church. In each of the five chapters... Uh, each of those five chapters in the letter ends with a reminder of Jesus' return. It's clearly something that Paul wants them to know. He's repeating it, not just for repetition's sake and not just for the sake of it. If Paul keep, keeps coming back to it, there must be a reason why. You see, Paul understood that there is hope to be found in what will happen at the end of time. And he's repeatedly directing the believer's attention there. That's what he's doing throughout this letter. There's hope to be found when Jesus comes back. Let's keep getting our attention back there. So let's read together. We're going to pick up uh, from chapter 4. We're now up into verse 13 in chapter 4. We're going to read through till 5.11. So this is Paul writing. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Have input on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. 
So having left Thessalonica, Paul, uh, he sends his friend Timothy to see how the church is getting on, to be able to report back to him, uh, to be able to, to kind of, uh, yeah, just say how, they, how they're doing, any concerns he might have. And we've seen already how encouraged he's been, but uh, really this report back has also allowed him to address any questions that the church had had, uh, or, the, or to build further on the foundations that he'd laid while he was with them. What we can see is that Paul had clearly taught them that Jesus was going to return. Okay? You can see that he taught them that Jesus was going to return. And Christians share a conviction that God's good plan for all things will come to pass. That Jesus will return. That evil and suffering will be done away with. That we will be given resurrected bodies and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. That is God's good plan. Let me run through that again. So Jesus will return. Evil and suffering will be done away with. We will be given resurrected bodies and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. And this is what Paul would have taught the church there. Now the Thessalonians had an understanding of Christ's return. But it appears that there was a concern about what that meant for the believers in the church who had died. There was a clear concern of theirs. They'd been living with this expectation. It would appear expecting Jesus to to return at any time. In their lifetime, they were expecting it. So what does that mean if they were waiting for Jesus to return? What does that mean for the brothers and sisters within the church who had died before Jesus had come back? Were they going to miss out in some way in what Jesus was going to do when he was coming back? And it was a real concern for them. Now, in the Greek culture... Remember, this is, uh, this is a city in Greece, and in that Greek culture, there uh, was no hope surrounding death. You, if you were to, uh, to look at any kind of writings from that time, uh, or if you had a look at what was written on tombstones and, uh, and tombs and that kind of thing, really it was very bleak, it was very pessimistic, it was a general hopelessness around death. And what about today? If we were to think about actually uh, what people think uh, about death and, and, and kind of what would happen beyond that, I would suggest that, you know, for many, many believe that death is it. There's nothing after it, that this life is all there is. And you kind of think that that seems pretty hopeless if that's the end of the story and there's nothing to go on to. And actually, if we think about uh, some of the, the other religions, perhaps many of the other religions, they would say that what happens after death is very dependent of on what you've done here and how you've lived and you won't know for sure what's waiting for you until you get there. That doesn't sound like there's a huge amount of hope there to me. It's very much a, we've just got to wait and see what happens and what kind of the verdict is there. And what about even for those who think, do you know what, I believe something happens after death but I'm not quite sure what it is. Again, that's a lot of uncertainty and we'll find out when it happens. There's not a lot of hope there. But Paul says that unlike for many where there is no hope, he says that there are those who grieve in hopelessness. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, there is hope in death. When Paul says that believers are not to grieve as those who have no hope, we have to be very careful that we don't misunderstand what he said. He's not saying that we can't grieve for those we've lost. The reality is, is death is painful. And when someone close to us dies, we're experiencing loss. 
We're coming to terms with what that's going to mean. It might mean having to make adjustments in our life because that person's no longer going to be around. And actually, if we look at Jesus, Jesus grieved, Jesus mourned when his friend Lazarus died. That was the response. It hurt. It was painful. The reason is, is because death was not part of God's original plan. It's not, it's not a good thing. And it's right to be upset and mournful. Because it shows what someone meant to us. But the contrast, but we have to be careful. Some people have taken what Paul's saying to mean it's okay to be sorrowful, but up to a point. Kind of don't go too far with it. But actually the contrast that Paul's making, he's not making a contrast between degrees of sorrow, but he's making a contrast between hope and despair. It's two very, very different things. He's saying, actually, for believers in death, we don't need to despair. We can grieve in hope instead. And the content of the hope, where the hope is found, Paul uh, lays out for us in verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's the content of the hope. It's based on the reality that Jesus died and rose again. And because of that, we too can be sure that that will happen to us. That's where the hope is. This is why the resurrection is so important. Because Jesus died and rose again. Death could not hold him. He has the victory. 1 Corinthians 15. It's Paul still writing. Paul writing to another church this time in Corinth. And Paul's talking about actually what then would have happened if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. What difference would that make? What would be the implications of that? And he says, actually, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So you're still in the same situation as you were before. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits, that is, he's the, the guarantee of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So what Paul is doing, how Paul is framing this hope and setting the context of the hope that the church is to have, that believers are to have, he looks back at what has gone before. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then having looked back at what's gone before, he then looks forward at what is to come. He says, and through Jesus, the one who died and has risen again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So because of what happened to Jesus, we can be assured because it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. And that's where our hope is to be found. Rather than talking about those who have died, Paul speaks of those who have fallen asleep. I don't know if you noticed that. It's such a helpful word that he uses. That choice that he makes is so helpful. Because when we're talking about those who have fallen asleep, it, it reiterates the, the truth that it's something that's temporary. It's not the end of something. It, it's, a, it's a period. It's a phase. But at some point, there will be a time to wake and for life to continue. And that's how Paul is talking about those believers who have passed. He says they're asleep. This is something that's temporary. It's not going to last forever. Actually, there's something beyond it. There's going to be a time to wait. And then what Paul does is he reassures them about what will happen when Jesus comes. 
there are many thoughts, many ideas, many different understandings, many misunderstandings about what will happen when Jesus returns, what it will look like, what the sequence of events will be like, what we can expect. If you kind of dig into it, there's a lot that you could find. And I would say, actually, there's definitely a time and a place to study and discuss these things. The Bible reveals some of this to us. So actually, we, it's right for us to kind of wrestle with it and try and work our way through and to discuss it and to share it. But actually, we're going to put those things to one side for this time this morning. And we're going to focus on what Paul writes about it. Because for Paul, Paul's written what he felt the church needed to hear and the church needed to know in their situation. Paul's purpose in writing to them is not to answer academic questions about last things, but instead his purpose and his heart is to fortify them in their bereavement. He's not looking to give them kind of an academic knowledge. He's looking to comfort them in the place where they are, in the things that they're struggling with, and in the place of feeling lost and not quite sure what that's going to mean for their friends and their brothers and sisters. And actually, I'm writing this to you about when Jesus returns, I'm going to let you know what's going to happen because I want you to be comforted in this, not because I want you to be able to give a detailed answer of what's going to happen. I think as well, it's helpful for us to know that when Scripture speaks about Christ's return and it speaks about those last days, for Christians, it's not to bring fear and it's not to bring divisiveness, but actually it's written to bring comfort and encouragement to us. And I think we need to be careful because sometimes it can, it can be something that, that can cause division and fear. But actually, we're like, no, it's written here to bring comfort and encouragement. And this is exactly what Paul's heart is for the Thessalonians. Paul's message is this. So remember that we've got this church and they're thinking, are those people in our family, those people in our church who who have passed before Jesus has come back, are they going to miss out? Are they going to miss out on the promises that God has spoken? Are they going to miss out on what Jesus came to do? And Paul's message is this, he says, far from missing out, those who have already died will have a very prominent place when Jesus returns. They're not going to miss out on anything. You can be assured and you can be secure and you can be hopeful that they have a prominent place. In these things. In the culture and time that Paul is writing in, when important dignitaries or victorious generals were were approaching a city, what would happen is that people from within the city would go and meet them on their way in. It would be a time of fanfare and celebration and joy. They're greeting someone on their way in and they would meet them outside the city and then they would continue their journey together into the city. And this is the picture that Paul uses when he describes what's going to happen when Jesus returns. The word he uses uh, when when he says that that we will will meet him, that word meet is the very word that is used to describe that picture that I just described. That's That's what it's for. So he's saying we will meet Jesus... He explains uh, how both those who who are asleep, so those who have already passed and those who are living, will be caught up together to meet Jesus in order to come down to earth together, enjoying hope and sharing in Jesus' glory. That's what he says. When Jesus returns, we will meet him, those who have fallen asleep and those who are still alive, we will meet him together and then we will continue with him on his journey to earth. And we will always... Be with the Lord. Remember, we said at the start 
of the, God's good plan is that Jesus comes, evil and suffering will cease. We're given resurrection bodies, new heavens and new earth. And really this is what Paul's saying is that Jesus is coming. You will meet him and you will, continue, you will be with him together and he will, you will always be with the Lord. Paul says, Christians, believers, brothers and sisters, you are to encourage one another with these words. Because there's comfort to be found in them. Because there's hope to be found in them. Because when people are grieving and when people have suffered loss, actually this is where their eyes need to be directed to. And as a family, I, I, I know I say it often, I'm reminded of... Uh, uh, um, often of the verse that says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn that's part of what it is to be together as a family and actually when people are grieving and suffering we need to get alongside one another and Paul's saying you know for believers we've got these words here we're to encourage one another this is a way that we can encourage one another but rem- by reminding one another of the hope that we have the hope that is to come I've been stirred by this because I don't know. I'm not entirely sure that it's something we speak of too often. What will happen when Christ returns and what that's going to mean for us. So I'm kind of working my way through this as well. As we go through this series. Because Paul's quite clear. He's like, actually, there's truth in here that we can use to comfort one another. And he says, this is a reunion with Jesus. But it's a reunion with one another as well. Isn't that wonderful? So that when Jesus returns, those who are asleep and those who are living, we will be united with him. But we will be united with one another. Isn't that one, is that so comfort, I find that so comforting. That we will be reunited with those who have gone before us. Now the Thessalonians... They had concerns for their friends that had passed, but it also appears that they had concerns for themselves. They had concern over whether they would be ready and whether they would be prepared for when Jesus comes. It appears they want to know more about the timing of when Jesus would return. After all, if they know when he's coming, they've got a deadline to work to. I don't know whether you find deadlines helpful or not, uh, but sometimes I know I've been guilty of it. I know I have a deadline, but I can tend to leave things kind of late to the deadline uh, and actually it seems like the, the church here they want to know what kind of time frame are we working to here so we can make sure we're ready when that time comes but even Jesus himself wouldn't put a time or a date on when he was going to come back Mark 12 32 33 he says concerning that day or that hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father so be on guard Keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. So even Jesus himself is saying, yeah, I'm coming back, but only the Father knows that that time. But be on guard and be ready, because you don't know when it's going to come. And the church knew this. The Thessalonians knew this. And Paul's response to them is something like this. You know already what my answer is going to be. He says, you're asking for a date or time, but you know... That we won't know that. So I can't tell you anything else. It's pretty much what he's saying. You know I can't tell you. There's nothing to add. I can't teach you anything because you know we're not going to know the time or the date. But what Paul does, rather than giving them a time, he then speaks about the nature of that day when Jesus will return. And then he speaks about how the church should respond to it. 
Now Romans 14.12 says that there'll come a time, there'll be a day that each one of us is going to give an account to God for the lives that we've lived. That's true for everyone. We're all going to give an account to God for what we've done. And Paul talks here about the day of the Lord. He's saying Jesus is coming back and there's a day that he will return and he's coming back to be God's awesome judge. And for those who have rejected Jesus, this is a fearful warning. But for those who trust in Jesus, actually this should be a joyful expectation. Because we've already been given that verdict of not guilty because of the work that Jesus has done and accomplished and achieved for us through his death and his resurrection. So with Jesus coming, yes, we are going to give an account to God for ourselves. But we know that we're safe and secure in Jesus, so there should be joyful expectation about his return. And then Paul uses these two metaphors about what it will be like on this day when Jesus returns. He talks about a thief in the night, and then he also talks about uh, a pregnant woman uh, in the early stages of labour. So they're fairly fairly different uh, metaphors that he's using, but he uses both of them because it gives us a really full picture of what he's talking about. So when he's talking about uh, the, the day coming like a thief in the night, he's saying it's going to be sudden, it's going to be unexpected, it's not something that you've prepared for, it's just going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to happen. And then what you, when he's then talking about a pregnant woman in the early stages of labour, it's not something that's unexpected because you've got all of those months that have kind of led up to it. Uh, so it's not something that's unexpected. You know that's what's going to happen at the end of your pregnancy. But what he's saying in this case is that it's sudden and it's unavoidable. So when you take those two pictures together, he's saying when the day of the Lord coming, he's saying actually it's going to be sudden and unexpected and unavoidable. That's the picture that he's, that he's using through these metaphors. Now I have this memory completely etched in my mind from when I was at university. It was terrifying and hugely embarrassing. And there was an occasion in my second year at university where I'd gone into the bathroom and one of my friends had hidden behind a shower curtain and thought it would be hilarious to jump out on me. I would have liked to have thought, and I would have assumed, that if something like that had ever happened, I would be able to take care of myself. I would respond in an appropriate manner, and I'd be able to, to look after myself, and, and uh, it just did not happen like that. There was lots of arm waving, there was lots of hand flapping, there might have been a scream, there was not a lot of positive response from me. Uh, it was very embarrassing, and my friend found it very, very funny. I assumed... To be fair, if I had thought about it much, it's not really the sort of thing you think about often, is it? If someone's going to be jumping out on you from behind the shower curtain. So uh, it's not something that I'd prepared myself for. I'd not really given it a huge amount of thought, but I'd like to have thought I'd have assumed I would be okay, that I would respond well in a situation like that. We all like to think well of ourselves, don't we, about how we would respond in different situations. And what I know that's a bit of a silly thing, and I'm not trying to kind of downplay what Paul's saying because Paul's talking about a very serious thing but the reason that came to mind is because when Jesus comes <clears throat> sorry Paul says that there are people that are saying there is peace and security things are going well maybe assuming that whatever may happen they'll cope they'll find a way to do it they'll be able to respond well with whatever comes along but Paul actually is saying you know when Jesus comes it's going to be sudden and unexpected and unavoidable 
And actually, everyone's going to find themselves in a situation of, actually, what, what's the response going to be? How are we going to respond? Because as I said, we're all going to give an account to God. But Paul draws a contrast. When we were reading through, did you notice he speaks about those in darkness and those in light? And actually, the response for those in darkness is very different to those who are in light. And he's talking about those who don't know Jesus and those who do know Jesus. And actually, for those who do know Jesus, far from being kept in the dark, we are to wait expectantly for Jesus' return. So it's not something that's sudden and unexpected, but it's something that we're ready for and prepared for. In verse 6 of chapter 5, Paul says, So then, let me just make sure I'm in the right one here. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And be sober. What he's saying by that, he's not talking about uh, physical, uh, being physically awake or sober to the extent that we might understand sobriety to mean. He's saying, be alert, be ready, and be self-controlled. Okay, so be alert and be ready and be self-controlled because we know that Jesus is going to be coming back. And when we're talking about being self-controlled, really that's what we've been looking at over the course of this letter. Do you remember, particularly the last few weeks when we're talking about living it out, what does it look like? Now our identity has changed, what does it look like to live this life out? And a lot of that was to do with self-control and living in a way that is appropriate to being in the family of God. So Paul's saying, be alert, be ready, and live it out. And he says, put on faith, love, and hope. If you were here for week one, we talked about faith, love and hope. Because if we go right back to the start of the letter in chapter one and verse three, Paul writes this. He says this is something the church is doing well. He says, remembering, we give thanks, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly the church had put on faith, they'd put on love, they'd put on hope. But it wasn't just... uh, kind of a a mental exercise or something for them to be aware of it was proving itself through the way that they were living it was working itself out it's a work of faith it's a labor of love it's steadfastness in hope there was practical daily outworkings for those things so paul is saying church be awake and be ready put on faith love and hope so that you're living in those things and working those things out every day So that when Jesus comes, you're ready for it because you've been living these things out already. Living in light of Jesus' return does not mean retreating from daily existence, but it's shown out in everyday actions. It's not something for us to to shy away and hide away, waiting for that day to come. It works itself out. As I say, that's what Paul's been describing through this letter. The certainty of Jesus' return. The hope that it gives should affect our convictions and also our conduct as Christians. Be ready. Be self-controlled. Live it out every day. When we were doing the life on the front line stuff in our growth group, uh, it got to one of the weeks where we were talking about how can we pray for one another? How can we best pray for you where you are on your front line? And for me, my prayer was this. My prayer was that I want to be more aware of what the Spirit is saying to me in the everyday. I want to be more aware of what the Spirit is doing, of the people he's leading me to, 
of the difference that I can make in someone's life by being a witness for him. That was my prayer. I want to be more aware of what the Spirit is doing. And then I wanted to be able to respond in obedience, to have courage and boldness to respond to where the Spirit would lead me. Because I want every day to count in my life and in my witness. And this came to mind when I was thinking about what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? And I'm thinking, actually, I want every day to count because I don't know when Jesus is coming back. But I want to make the most of those opportunities that he gives me. For me personally, in my own walk, but also in my witness for others. And I don't mean that in a heavy way, we've got to go out and we've got to make sure we're telling everyone all the time. No, it's actually walking with the Spirit being aware of what he's saying in each situation and making sure we're taking those opportunities that he's leading us into because we want every day to count. And Paul bases how we should behave on who we are. So he says, be alert and be ready because you're children of light. And then the truth of who we are is based on what God has done for us. Based on the, the, the truth that his purpose is for us is not that we've been destined for wrath, but that we've been destined to obtain salvation through Jesus. You see, the hope we're told to put on, it's not mere hope. I think my hope in my football team was it's mere hope. Actually, Paul says, put on the hope of salvation. It's a sure hope. It's a guaranteed hope based not on anything that you've done, not on anything that you have to do, but based upon... God's purpose for you in receiving salvation. This is not an achievement of ours, but it's a work of his. That's where our hope is based. And our hope is not just that Christ is coming, because actually the thought that Christ is coming can cause anxiety and distress. It can. But Paul is saying further, he's saying that Jesus is coming, but also Jesus who is coming to us is the very one who died for us and rose again. That's why we have hope. So church, Paul finishes with this as well. He says, let's encourage one another and build one another up to be a people who are alert and living it out and living with hope. As you read through this book, through, through most of the New Testament, but been aware through this book that we've been looking at, there's such a huge focus on the body, on the community, on the family, Living it out together, encouraging one another, building one another up. We've had it come through in worship already. Actually, what, God, what gifts has God given you for the family? With the picture that Lou bought, what she shared about people gathering around and helping one another, which she was talking about with the obstacle course. Actually, whether, we, um, whether we're talking about the, the first part of what Paul was talking about in terms of standing with those who grieve and, and being able to encourage and build and comfort people up who are grieving, Actually, we're to be encouraging and building one another up uh, to being ready and living lives that, that are living out the hope that we have. Faith, love and hope. And this hope that we have, it brings comfort to those who grieve. But it also allows us to endure and to be resilient in the face of difficulties. I'm just going to finish with this and then the band's going to come back up and we're going we're to continue our time of worship. And here's something just for us to consider at the end, is that hope is contagious. Hope is contagious. Because when hope is visible, it attracts men, women and children to place their hope in the gospel. 
when people look at the church, whether we're talking about us in Faversham or the church generally, if people look at the church and if they see people who have hope in whatever life is bringing their way and looking at how we have hope, we respond with hope to different situations, there's something very attractive about that. Because hope is contagious. And this is something for all of us to think about. Because in 1 Peter 3.15 it says, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Because hope is contagious. Because people need hope. Because people are looking for hope. Because as a church we can be witnesses of hope. Because we are sure of the hope that we have, which is found in the person and the work of Jesus.